Welcome, everyone. I'm Sandra Bargeman. A few years ago, I wrote and performed a solo show called The Edge of Every Day, which was an exploration of the rough edges and contradictions we all face and grapple with. The show hit a nerve, and the relevance of the topic would only grow over time more than I could have foreseen. So, here we are. Real talk with real people, sharing stories and perspectives that spark provocative invitations to leap out of what's safe. On the edge of every day. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. We are live in the hive. Thank you for joining me on this, the fourth episode of The Edge of Every Day, here on talkradio.nyc. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, and for those of you who don't know me yet, I encourage you to check out my bio on talkradio.nyc, or of course you can visit my website, sandrabargeman.com, or you can tune in to the replay of my debut episode where I shared about the work that I do and the inspiration for this podcast. Actually, those understandings are being woven into each of the previous episodes. In a nutshell, it's a show about pushing boundaries and exploring rough edges. Through conversations and shared stories with friends and colleagues, it's my hope that we can begin to understand our edges. And what I mean by edges is those places where we are fearful, those places where we are resistant to change, those places where paradoxes and contradictions live in our beliefs and our understandings, both internally and collectively in the world around us. We live in edgy, challenging times, but Life isn't black versus white, it's an embrace of both. And the more we recognize our own edges and get real with them, the more we can help others to do the same. And that, I fully believe, can help to change the world. So, thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, it is time to introduce our guest this evening, Joan Kang, director producer, dramaturg, writer, actor, is the founding artistic director of Ego Actus, a theater company in New York City. Joan directed Sycorax, Cyber Queen of Kamara at Here, Play Nice at 59 East 59 Theaters, I Know What Boys Want at Theater Row, Six Characters in Search of an Author in Oslo, Norway, and Kafka's Belinda in Prague. She also directed both Safe and What Do You Mean at 59 East 59 Theatres and in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, getting four-star reviews for each. Joan was awarded Best Director in the United Solo Festival, where she has directed six pieces. Joan was named one of the People of the Year in 2011 in honor of her contributions to the New York theater scene. And she was inducted to the Indie Theater Hall of Fame by NewYorkTheater.com. Her shows have been nominated for 61 awards, winning 21. Early in her career, she was an equity, AFTRA, and SAG actress. She later became a teaching artist for Henry Street Settlement young playwrights, and theater for the new audience. Joan went on to teach in New York City public schools and at Fordham University as an adjunct professor. She recently went back on stage in her own solo show, Almost 13, which she performed in the 2019 United Solo Festival and again last month at the Episcopal Actors Guild. Welcome, Joan Kane. <laughs> Hello, Sandra. Yay! It's great hearing you. It's great seeing you. It's great having you. Thank you so much for being on here. And thank you for inviting me. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's dive in. Mm -hmm. I want to start with, of course, how we met. And that's, it's a really great, edgy, fabulous story. And so I'll start. Playwright Connie Kepfinger friend of mine, a friend of yours, our mutual friend at the time, um, and a prolific playwright. 
she and I, uh, she's also from Pittsburgh. That's how I know her. And we decided to do, to produce together one of her plays, Garrett, the Blue Giraffe. And we did it at the Hudson Guild Theater in the Thespis Theater Festival. And we had, it was a twofer, two characters, me playing Israfel and the wonderful actress Puya Moseni playing Garrett. And we needed a director. And I was new to the indie scene. And I was new. It was a new production for me under Sacred Stages. It was the first thing I produced under Sacred Stages. And Connie said, listen, I got the perfect person for this play, Joan Kane. I said, please call her. And of course, the rest is history. Thankfully, in your busy schedule, you were free to do it. Uh, it was it was an amazing experience, too. We, we met. First of all, I read the play and I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is really quite wonderful. I want it. I want it. I want to do this. I want to direct it. I want to take it off the page and make it 3D and put it on the stage. And Connie had done the actual casting. And then when I met you and I met um, Puglia, I went, oh, yes, we we have to do this. This is really going to be a really wonderful experience. And it was. Um, Everybody just loved working on it. Oh, totally. In rehearsals, we experimented, we tried different ways of doing what we were doing, and it it was pretty much a success. Truly. And it was a perfect example of leaping off the edge. It was a yeah. real edge story. The actual play, this is how it was um, called, this is how it was um, spoken of. A tale of discovery that explores the very essence of living itself, like all of us, Garrett comes to realize the purpose of life, and she learns it is time to evolve and to break free from imaginary boundaries that restrain her passions. Pushing Mm -hmm. boundaries and exploring and jumping off rough edges. I love it. Which actually, Paul, you did. Yeah, I I was just going to say, and... You know, we loved doing the play. We loved working with each other. We loved working with you. It was a little love fest and of such an uplifting experience. And then tell that story with Puya. Well, you know, as I said, I was given the cast and we were in rehearsals one day and Puya, we were doing, we were actually sitting at the table when this happened and Puya very calmly said, I have to tell you my story. And I went, yes, Puya, tell us your story. And she started talking about her time living in Iran and how she couldn't live in Iran because of who she was. And it turns out that that Puglia's parents moved her here to uh, America because if she's transgender and mm-hmm. if she was going to be a she in a, a li- and, and live and live. Yeah. So her parents, who were very supportive, moved her here and then her and she she didn't really tell anybody she was transgender. No. This was how she came out. This, this is how this she experience inspired inspired her to take the final leap. Because what happens with with uh, Garrett, the blue giraffe? Garrett does not want to be a giraffe. No. Garrett's true spirit is to be a rhinoceros. <laughs> and, and and it was it sounds like a children's show. But it was it was really a metaphor. It was very simple in that respect. And it was a metaphor for finding out what your true identity is. Where do you feel comfortable? Where where is your true nature? And having the courage to embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. So um it, it was it was one of the most experience, you know, amazing experiences I had in terms of a rehearsal and somebody being that vulnerable and that raw and Truly. that yeah, and, and just talking and then using it in the play. Um, people who came to see it thought it was it was uh, it was just amazing. So yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Okay, well then, um, fast forward and just just to l- r- remind everyone again, this was not something that Ego Actus produced. We no. we were we no. were fledgling producers. Um, also, you know. She had written it and we were fledgling producers. But fast forward uh, about three years and I get a call from you. It's not like we hadn't spoken, but I get a call from you that you are now producing and casting uh, a, a new play 
called Sycorax, Cyber Queen of Kamara mm-hmm. by Fen Gargale. Yes. So tell us the story of how you came in contact with that play. What what were you drawn to it? It's filled with uh, amazing themes that we'll speak about. Mm-hmm. Well, Sycorax is Caliban's mother. And I think there's two lines about her in The Tempest. And the blue-eyed Fink, witch. Yeah. Well, what Fink Gargale does in her plays is she gives identity to women who don't have identities or are, are underrepresented in history. So that's what she did. She took this particular character, Sycorax, the mother of Caliban, and who's an amazing character, Caliban. Everybody knows Caliban, but it, we don't know his mother. <laughs> you know, how did he come about? So she gave Sycorax this backstory. And then I, as soon as I read the play, I put it down and I said to my partner in crime, Bruce Kramer, who's the co-producer and, and my husband on, on, on Ego Actus, I said, guess who I want to play Sycorax? And he said, who? And, and and we were at the beach because it was like the summer. It was like, I think it was in like June. I had read the play and we were producing it that September. And because, because Connie, uh, not Connie, um, Fingar came to me really quickly and said, I want you to do this. You're the right person to, to direct this play. And he went, I didn't remember that. Ah, (laughs) So, um, yeah. So I, I, I said to him, I said to Bruce, I want Sandra Bargeman to play Sycorax. She has the, gra- the the gravitas to play this incredible character. And you read the play and right away you said yes. Right away. <laughs> everything came in order right away. Um, <laughs> what Fingard does with her plays, again, she gives characters female characters identities and she gives them a voice and that's what she did with cigarettes totally well and the themes were just and it was so interesting because what was going on in my life at the time um you know my husband was going through cancer treatment and so i had this to grasp on to um and keep me afloat creatively through through the the turmoil of that but what i loved feminism and women's rage and i don't think there's a woman out there that couldn't relate to her rage not one female that couldn't relate to the woman's rage that you know this this character has waited 500 years to to share her her tragedies and get her revenge, um, you know. So, but there was, you know, the the whole AI element and technology and um, the the edge of all of that, and and how she could manipulate that, and you know, made me, of course, think about that for mankind. Um, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and ageism. Amazing ageism. And she said, it's taking me how many years, how many thousands of years before I've been able to tell my story. Yeah. And everybody who, who went to see it, who who the audience, not only did they love it, but they came away with this sense of, I never knew about this woman. I'm mm-hmm. so glad that I now hear her story. Yeah. And of course, this is why Caliban is the, who he is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Of course. Well, and on that note, um, we've just been given our, our uh, need to go to break. So we will come back with Joan Kane and talk about her creative life and her creation of Ego Actus when we come back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. with our guest, Joan Kane on the edge of every day. So the two plays that I was lucky enough to be a part of with you, um, I feel really were great examples of the philosophy that you live by and work with in your creation of theater and in the way that you create art, period, and the way that you interpret the world. And you just are such a great, curious person and constantly learning. And so I want to um, I want to start this segment reading the mission statement of Ego Actus. It's awesome. Our Ego Actus mission statement is simple. We create provocative accessible theater. Our log line is simple too. It's not off-Broadway, it's independent theater. If you want to see Shrek or Cats, go to Broadway. But if you want to see provocative, groundbreaking, accessible, cutting-edge theater, buy a ticket to one of our shows. We feel theatrical drama is an important form of cultural communication. We want to change the way people look at the world. Our shows are designed to make you think, and they are priced so that anyone can see them. We want to change the way people look at the world, and we hope people walk away from our shows talking about the topics and considering points of view, the other points of view than their own. We explore the relationship between art and social change. How does our work fit into that relationship? Art is a communication industry that is focused on how society sees itself. We want to be accessible, affordable channel for that communication. By presenting stories that illustrate social issues, we are creating dialogue with our audiences. The Edge of Every Day. It's all about uh, discussion. It's all about how do you have a discussion and being able to listen to points of view that may not be your own. And I think that's how we really affect change in the world. Is well, that being able to be open and hear other people's point of view. Oh, truly. And do we need that more than ever now? Mm-hmm. But I, I just love your commitment to the under. And when I created the Edge of Every, Every Day, I called it edutainment. Mm. And, you know, it's it's wonderful to be entertained. And Lord knows I've attended plenty of things like Shrek and Cats. But is that what we want to create right now? And in particularly in these challenging times, I just love your commitment to it. So I want to go jump into um, I want to hear about your childhood. What was it like? And, you know, was your family supportive of you? And did you have the social streak in you even as a young person? Uh, to answer that question, I think I did. I was always uh, the person who stood up to the bullies and wouldn't let anybody else bully anybody else. <laughs> I grew Warrior. up. In, 
I was a warrior. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn in a place called South Brooklyn, which is now called Park Slope. And and I basically was uh, in a low income household. My my family was very working class. Uh, I went to a Catholic school, so the doctrine of Christianity was really beat into me. Um, but there was something that I loved to do. I loved to perform. And I had a I had a, a, a nun in school, Sister Mary Killian, who used to put me in all the, the skits, <laughs> you know, all the little plays. Yeah. And then when I was going to go to high school, they wanted me to go to an oral, all girls high school. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so Sister Mary Killian said, what about you go to the high school of performing arts? And she worked with me. She, she actually made sure I had the right monologues and worked with me every day after school and was my coach. And, and we're talking about a woman who knew nothing about theater, you know, but she, she was able to get out of me a performance that I, I actually auditioned. I made the school and I went there for four years and it changed my life. Not only was I taken from my very Christian, uh, Italian, Irish, Jewish neighborhood, I was put into this school, which was on 46th Street and everybody was from all over the city. So I saw people from all different backgrounds there and we all worked together to do one thing, create theater, create a scene, create a play, create a dance piece. And we had that commonality that we had something we were going to do together. It didn't matter. I mean, we had people in our school that were very wealthy. We had people that were very poor. We had people that oh, yeah. had projects that didn't, you know, so there was this sense of, we don't care where you're coming from. You have to have the discipline to create this piece of theater. And yeah. that's what we did for four years. I, I was like a pig in mud. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it really theater is such a great equalizer. You know, yeah, totally. it just levels the playing field for everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't go on to college. I went straight into the theater, uh, into the, the profession. I went to the neighborhood playhouse and then I I went and worked as a equity after SAG actress, did a lot of waiting on tables, did a lot of uh off off Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Um and then I decided at the age of uh, 24, I actually met my husband. We were, we were working on a show. My husband's a lighting designer, Bruce Kramer. And basically, he was doing the lighting for a show. Um, it was a, a piece on East 4th Street. Uh, it was, um, oh, my goodness. That was so long ago. Uh, it was called, <laughs> it was called um, Platonov by Chekhov, his, one of his un, unfinished plays. Anyway, so he was doing the lighting, and I was doing the acting, and and uh, we met, and a year later, we were married. I was 24, he was 25. We met, I was 23, he was 24. And he one day said to me, he said, you've never gone to college? And I said, no. Now, he was from Marin County, a whole different <laughs> world, a continent away, you know, across the country. And he said, do you want to? And I said, I'd love to. Mm-hmm. So I enrolled at Fordham University, and I became a, my undergraduate degree was in American history. I didn't study theater at all. I did a liberal arts degree and I, it was like being in a candy store. I could study whatever I want. I studied astrology and math. Who know? Who knew I liked math? You know, things that I had never really been exposed to. So that was how I, I basically came into the theater. And then I was about, I want to say 29 years old. And I was taking a class with Kirk Dempster and and he looked at me, you know, after I was in acting class and he said, you know, why don't you why don't you come into my directing class? I said, no, but I'm an actor. I'm not a director. And he said, come, come on. I have a space in there. I need a director, uh, you know, to fill up this class. And I did. And I fell in love with directing because mm-hmm. I was always looking at the big picture. I wasn't just looking at my character and what my character wanted. I was always looking at what the play wanted, the dialogue that the play was having with the audience. And I fell in love with with, uh, directing. In the meanwhile, while I was doing that, I had to make a living. So I was an artist in residence in different, for Henry Street Settlement, Theater for New Audience, um, Young Playwrights. I was teaching playwriting and, and directing and puppetry in the New York City public schools. And I fell in love with teaching because I saw what theater was doing. Changing was their lives. Changing people's lives like it had changed mine. Mm. Uh, and meanwhile, I started having children. I have two sons. 
who are now elders, 34 and 36. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was, you know, my life had this melding. It was flowing. It just wasn't this one path. It had this like journey. I, I was always, go, always going over hills, underneath lens, <laughs> going over rivers. You know, the journey was such that it just wasn't one way. It just wasn't one path. And all of that I've used in my in my work, all of that experiences. Went on to get a, a degree in um, museum education at Bank Street, which is a which is an organization that basically uh, looks at the kid, right? And looks at the child with what the kid has, not with what they don't have. So this child, what do they have that they bring to this educational experience and how can I work from there? So it was very child experiential learning. And I taught museums for a number of years. I was the curator of school programs at the Hudson River Museum. So as I said, I had this really incredible journey. Um, this vast tapestry of changing the world combined with art. Yes. At every corner, at every edge, that was the meeting point. Yeah. Wow. There was always art in my life in some way. And what I was able to do in museums also was to take theater and make the paintings three-dimensional. We would take a painting and we would look at it and we would, you know, do a tableau. We would actually, the kids would get up and they would, you know, uh, take the painting that was there and and pose in the poses of the characters or objects. And then I would say, what's the moment before? What's the moment after? So it was about how do we get into this this piece of art? How do we really get into it on our own terms? So that was always very much part of my life and my mission in life is how do we make art accessible? Because I think that, yeah, I love Broadway, but the prices are astronomical and there's only one class of people who can go or you have to, you know, save up for a hundred years yeah. Yeah, yeah. To, to go. And and, you know, there's incredible shows on Broadway. And what I love is I, I use TDF or TKTS because they have half price tickets and sure. we're able to then access, you know, theaters be able to be a little bit more accessible. So how do we make that accessible to everybody involved? So it's not just this have and have not of, of theater. Um, then I went on to, to actually um, become a, a theater owner, so to speak. <laughs> I, was, I was studying at um, La Mama Umbria. They had a directing symposium run by David Diamond and Ellen Stewart and Mia Wu. And I was there and Ellen, Ellen Stewart was there. Ellen Stewart, and, the, the La Mama. Yeah. And she gave me the advice. I was having a hard time getting, getting jobs as a director. And she gave me this advice. She said, paint your own door and walk through it. Why are you always yes. asking everybody, everybody else permission to do your work? Give yourself your own permission. That's when... I gave myself the permission to form my own theater company, Ego Actus, which is Latin for my way, meaning that every artist, whether you're a designer, an actor, director, writer, you come to the process doing what you do your own way, because there's not just one way to do anything. There's many ways to create and actually respecting that part of the artistic process. So that's that's the I mean, we've been together for about 12 years now producing uh, what I call, you know, accessible theater. Wow. Well, it's time for a break. Yeah, yeah. that was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And when we come back, we will. Oh, yes, we're going to talk about almost 13 and zooming as the great equalizer when we come back with Joan King. Hey, Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism, 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Chipping around, kick my brain to the ground. These are the days it never And we are back on the edge of every day with my guest, director, actor, producer, Joan Kane. So, so, of course, we'll, we'll be able to weave more about ego actus. I felt like we were just diving into it and we had to jump to break. We'll be able to weave more into this segment. And I want to weave it through um, the great equalizer of Zoom that you had to that we all had to go through. But as a producer and a director, how you you had a wonderful play reading series, Survival is Insufficient on Zoom early in the pandemic. And and I want to tie all of that in with this, this, where are we now in theater as we lift out of the pandemic, or hopefully lifting out of the pandemic. I'm assuming we are, but we're not 100% sure. Where is theater going to go? And how does this relate to your solo show, Almost 13? I want to talk about the creation of that and your Kintsugi philosophy that is woven into almost 13. So do you want to jump into um, the Zoom and how it relates with Ego Actus, or do you want to jump to almost 13? But, well, well, let's talk about survival is insufficient. So Excellent. when the pandemic hit, we were all shell-shocked. We were, what do we do now? What has, what has uh, kept my blood flowing is being able to create theater. And here now I couldn't go out. I mean, it, we were in quarantine. So the next great thing was Zoom. And we were all like, we were all freaked out. We were all freaked out, but we were all kind of like, oh, there's this new tool. At least we have that. How do we make this work? And we actually did. We, we stumbled and, you know, <laughs> bruised our knees and, Dealt with interruptions from not having a great screamed and yelled at the learning curve. Yeah, totally. And then um, I actually think that it's not enough to survive the pandemic. We needed to be able to thrive. And how do we thrive? And that's through creating art and creating Mm -hmm. it together. So what I did was I looked at um, a lot of plays, but I came up with 10 plays by 10 different playwrights and two, including, uh, Frederick Brackbird, who is a Norwegian playwright who we've worked with before. And we did Zoom readings of the plays. Mm. Um, we had many actors involved. Uh, people loved it. They came. I mean, it, there were times when we had like, you know, 700 people on yeah. on just seeing the Zoom. People wanted it. They were hungry for it. Yes, yes they we were. were. In these, yeah, we were in these little boxes, our faces, but we were still able to take the words that these wonderful playwrights had written and make them come alive with the, with the creation and the, the way the act is imbibed these characters and how did you come alive. Did you feel like this newfound connection to creating community? Yeah. Through the zoom. I mean, and not just, I mean, it was ironic, this whole sense of like the world stopped and mm-hmm. we all had to go away and we all had to have this 
Zoom experience to understand that, you know what? We need to build community. We need to think about community in new ways mm-hmm. post-pandemic. Yes. And I think that the art, the theatrical world is going through that. Well, it also made it accessible to people who couldn't come to the theater. So, for instance, there are people that I know in, in European countries and in African countries who could never come and see a show that I've directed and, and produced. We're now able to hear to and see. Genuinely get global. Yes. Yes. So I, I think in a sense, I'm not saying the pandemic was good for us. Oh, but, but it, there's silver linings. Absolutely. Totally. There was a silver lining there. And we all became much better at Zoom. We all, <laughs> right? Well, and I think it's going to here to stay. I, you know, I, I hey, absolutely. But re, what people were able to do, I was involved with Joyland that we pushed, seriously pushed the envelope with what was what we were totally, capable of. Totally. That's what we did. We pushed the envelope. We were able to make to make what was never accessible to everybody. So this really elitist little uh, thing called theater in New York City became a global yeah. experience for many people. Pushed and I boundaries. Push the boundaries, which you always talk about, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> and you were in a few of our Zoom pieces. I was. Was, yeah. Gloriously. Yeah. Gloriously. Um, so I had created to, to talk about almost 13. I had created almost 13 in 2000. Uh, no, it was 2000. I want to say 16 when I was at the La Mama Umbria uh, playwriting program. I was studying with a, a Brendan Jacob Jenkins who wrote an Octoroon and, and other wonderful plays. And oh, I'm, yeah. I didn't feel like I was a playwright, but I, I was there with some really incredible playwrights and I had written a few scenes and I wanted to develop this even more. And I was planning on actually producing it as a full, like 16 characters, multi-actor play. <sighs> and I had written it that way, but that's, that's really expensive to produce. <laughs> <laughs> So I talked to Brendan. He said, well, why don't you write it as a solo show? And I did. I wrote it as a solo show and I decided to perform it. It's my life story. It's my life going up in, in South Brooklyn and the roughness and how, uh, how I became broken. I saw a horrible incident that happened and it broke me. It really made me feel for majority of my life like I was broken. And then I said, oh my goodness, this is, I can't live with this. So writing writing it, really helped me to heal it helped me to get it out and say this this is something that is it's a way of really healing it's a way of getting it out onto the onto into the world um so i'm at strand bookshop right and i see this book come off the shelf and (laughs) land at my feet and it is a book about kintsuki and i'm like what is this and I'm standing there and I'm reading this book. I stood there for I don't know how many hours and I read the book. And kintsuki is a Japanese art form of when a pottery falls, instead of taking the pieces and throwing them away, you take this gold glue, this glue made of gold, and you put all the pieces back together. And the bowl becomes even more beautiful than it was before it was broken. So it's really about accepting your brokenness. And at the end of my play, I use the line from Leonard Cohen, everything has cracks in it. That's how the light gets in. Mm. And for me, it was a process of understanding that my brokenness was also what was beautiful about me. Yes. This sense of pain that I had, this sense of trauma also became a part of who I am as a person and why I am such a a compassionate human being because I do understand that about brokenness. I do understand how people really, you know, what happens when you have something traumatic happen to you? How do you get over it? Which led me to my next point of why I wanted to write the play is that you can, you can go through things that are horrible in your your life. You don't need to stay there in that moment. You can take that moment with you into the future and you can go beyond it. And you can still live a productive life. You can still live a life that's worth living. You don't have to be affected by it in the sense of making it stop you where where it happened to you. So 
it's really about taking this cycle of brokenness and and learning how to learning how to to help myself belong to me <laughs> so mm-hmm. owning myself as opposed to that incident that that traumatic experience owning me i own me now it's it's a it's a woven philosophy actually it's very similar to wabi sabi in that the exactly of the imperfection and 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 the 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 beautification of the imperfection right right so this 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 whole kintsugi has really kind of been your springboard like the edge of every day became my my kind of became my this boom this is how i understand life the concepts and those concepts that you put forward in your one woman show have sort of become your philosophy of life and what you have discovered about humanity coming out of the pandemic yes right totally totally i, I think our society is broken mm-hmm. but if we look at the brokenness it it's actually opened up we've cracked open and we see these are the parts that we need to fix. These are the parts that we need to look at, examine. We have institutional racism is, is it's been in our country since the country was founded, but we're not just really beginning to talk about it and examine it and do something about it. I think we've always been talking about it, but there's always been these band Talking around it, I would say. Yeah. Exactly. But now there's some, there's a chance to heal it, there's a chance to say, no, we're not going to live this way anymore. We are going to do something about it. We're going to rip off these Band-Aids and we're not totally. going to let this well, happen anymore. I think, yeah, with the, the uh, much of what's happened politically, mm-hmm. I'll speak for myself. I, I, I thought we were farther along in the whole racism issue, you know, naively. Um, so, yeah, I think we are broken, but I do agree with you that we are we are you know, going out those edges and hopefully putting them together with golden dust. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I I think, you know, what happened to me as a kid growing up, I was 12 years old. And, you know, again, a lot of my choices were made based on that traumatic experience, but being able to use that experience to go forward as opposed to being staying there. And I think, again, the pandemic, we can use this as a learning tool. We, you know, it's always been a part of my life is learning. How do we learn? You know, how do we take these experiences in our life? What is the universe trying to teach us? These are life lessons. to transform. That's right. That's right. Transform. As opposed to to wounds, constant wounding from it. Yeah, yeah. So I've been really grateful that I, I I was able to perform it for four times at the Episcopal Actors Guild. Karen and the people over there are just so supportive of, of all the artists that mm. that walk through that place, and and I've been really really fortunate to have their their uh, support. Yeah. What are you hoping for in terms of where you want this to go? Now that you you know you're just you continue to polish it and fine tune it. What what are, what are your future plans for it? Um, we're hoping to take it to the Edinburgh Festival. Fringe Festival, Fantastic. which we were going to take it in in uh, twenty, in in summer of twenty, but the pandemic happened. Right. <laughs> so, so we're doing it in twenty two, and we're, we're going to be going over there. We're in the process right now of looking at theaters and and uh, you know checking out, checking out to see is it going to be open. You know, we have to we have to walk on this very fine line here because mm-hmm. it may close down again. You don't know. So our expectations have to be flexible, but that's my dream. That's my hope for it. I want to do it in schools. I want yeah. to have, have a lot of uh, conversations with students and, and and folks and, and not just students, you know, people who've been Beautiful. through trauma. Yeah. Well, you know, we can also, we, we're going to have to go to break quickly, but, but, but to this whole zoom, we swing back around to zoom. It, it is possible. You have taped it. You could create something that you could stream too that in this now hybrid world that we live in a live Mm -hmm. performance videotaped and then streamed on zoom a lot of the festivals have been doing that they've been doing uh, you know um uh zoom you know zooming or streaming and also live performances you know they've been a lot of hybrids going on so it's not well we love our hybrids 
We, we love pushing the envelope and the boundaries. And now we've got to go to break and we'll be back okay. with the glorious Joan Kane. <laughs> Join us every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behavior to get that inside track what to do, what to avoid, and what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4 p.m. every Tuesday for the Mind Behind Leadership here live on talkradio.nyc. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. all pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Chipping around, kick my brain to the ground. These are the days it never And we are back with Joan Kane. So one of the things that um, Joan and I share is a profound connection to Mother Earth. Um, in 2017, you were a great friend and cheerleader when I went off and did uh, the climate change leadership program with Al Gore in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Um, and I came back and you had you brought to my attention the work of Arctic Cycle and the Climate Change Theater Action Group, the founder of those groups, Chantal Bilodeau, um, who has made quite a name for herself as a playwright that is dedicated to writing plays about the issue of climate change. And so, again, uh, you know, I w- how do we push the boundaries of climate change and inspire people to action with our art? And so tell us about your involvement in the climate change theater action with Chantel and the climate plays. Well, Chantel um, commissions 50 playwrights to write short plays about climate change. And what she asks people to do, companies, schools, whoever you are, you can be an individual and do it in your living room. You could do it. I hope to do it next in the plum. Yeah. Yeah. With you. I hope so. (laughs) But this time around, uh, 2021, we're doing it at the Episcopal Actors Guild on December 4th at uh, from 7 to 9 p.m. We're having a series of eight different plays. We've been reading the 50 plays, <laughs> which are all wonderful, and it's really hard to pick. Um, <laughs> and what we're going to be doing is doing a series of, uh, we're going to be doing a reading of all of these eight plays with, with uh, actors that we've worked with before. Mm-hmm. And... And we're just in the process of picking the plays. We almost have them all picked. And me and Bruce are the people who who pick them. And so we argue back and forth. No, I want that one. Well, if you want that one, I need this one. Yeah. So like any good marriage. Totally, totally. <laughs> and um, and then we're going to be presenting them to uh, uh, an audience. It, it's free. And afterwards, we have conversations about how can you as an individual take responsibility for climate change to help in your little corner of the world to help understand what climate change is, even if it's not happening to you, even if it's wow. like when we did it the last time it was in 2019 and we had a whole discussion about plastic <laughs> and yeah. that was two years ago. It was more than two years ago. Yeah. But the point is, is that we, we actually, now we see in our, in our 
in our grocery stores, we don't have plastic bags anymore. We don't have plastic straws. So there is a chance for change to happen. Change happens gradually. I've come to understand it that way. We, you know, we we get really impatient. We want it to happen like right away, but we, we have to, it's like, you know, I'm a Capricorn and I'm very much into, I stick to it. I'm very, I'm very stubborn that way. Okay. One foot at a time, one foot at she a time. She has her horns. <laughs> Cool, right. And and that's basically what this is about is is opening up the dialogue and using the plays that we're going to be producing and reading to have to have that dialogue. Some of them are very funny. Climate change is funny. Of course. But also huh. you can you, you need to to help people to laugh too. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. Well, one of the things that we discussed in this leadership training, of course, was h- how to put programs together that, you know, um, presentations with slideshows and the whole nine yards and, and how, how do you want to engage people and teach them? And, you know, and I, I did some of those, but I feel as though it's the use of art and plays that is, is a more profound way for me to get the information out. And, you know, and it's, it's understanding that another big thing that they really, um, expressed was that you don't have to be an expert. This climate change leadership training was not to become an expert. It was to, to be enlivened and w- given facts and given a group of, of, of people that you could go to to continue to gather facts and ways of getting this information out there and to embolden people to, to have a voice to speak, just speak about it, have a voice, share their passion, their fear, and their hope about it. Because I think, and that's where the art comes in, people can, can you know, we, we just want to hide our head in the, in the sand, um, we humans, about climate change. And uh, because we feel devastated, as if there is no hope and there's no way to do it, and that's just simply not true. It would take 2% of our budget, 2% around the world, of everyone's budget, we could change things dramatically. Totally. Well, you know, the scientists, I love scientists. I think they're incredible humans. I'm married to one. I know. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but they don't really understand how to, they're dry when they put it out there. To they disseminate dry. the information. Absolutely. Yes. So, you know, they have a lot of facts, a lot of figures, beautiful slides and such. But it's the artist who can really make it accessible. And that's the difference. That's Boy. That's right. We give voice to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, I've always been really into Mother Nature and I never really uh, understood Mother Nature in the mm-hmm. sense of the way I'm understanding her now yeah. and how she's becoming so much more part of my life, which is I want to get into a little bit of, of bathing. bathing and how I ran into that. I was I was actually in the middle of the pandemic and I, I uh, Mohonk Mountain House had opened up. And me and Bruce went there to celebrate our anniversary. Oh, we two nights over there. And uh, Nina Smiley was was doing was conducting a, a a forest bathing trip through the woods. There, they have this beautiful. And who is Nina trip. Smiley? She's one of the people. She's part of the Smiley family that owns Mohonk Mountain House. And but oh, she's okay. also a, a mindful a teacher. forest bather. She's a forest bather. So I went, and all of a sudden, I was in this forest this beautiful, pristine forest. And the, the stress was rolling off of me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my body stopped hurting. So I said to Nina, I said, Nina, where can I learn more about this? And she gave me some books and, and I started studying and studying. And then I found an organization that I actually went for the last 18 months and through Zoom, talking about Zoom being accessible, we did the curriculum over Zoom. And then we met four different times in person with our masks. And we did, we practiced forest bathing. We mm-hmm. we actually um, engaged with the curriculum and I became a certified forest bather. <laughs> so real, real quickly, for those who have no idea what forest bathing is, I mean, I know what it is. Can you give a succinct understanding of what yeah. forest bathing is? What it, what it is is that the trees have properties. They have chemicals that they emit that heal us. 
And they found in Japan in the 1980s, people were, were getting really stressed out and killing themselves basically from overwork. And they took the scientists, the scientists into the forest and the doctors, and they studied what nature has, how it can heal us, the properties of nature, and how it can lower our blood pressure and our cortisol levels and all the other things are, are insomnia. And they, so they have documentation about forest bathing. And you can take the same techniques. They're very specific techniques. You can take the same techniques and you can use them in oceans, lakes, rivers, in parks. And I do forest bathing with groups of people down here by the Hudson River in Chelsea. I do it at the the Ramble in Central Park. I was just up in Vermont. Um, I was brought up by um, this group of people uh, to do forest bathing with a group of artists on an artist retreat. So mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of places where you can be doing forest bathing. You don't need to go to Japan, you know, in these pristine <laughs> forests. You can, but it's the whole techniques of of using nature to heal yourself, to help yeah. yourself to let go of your stress and to become mindful. Um, and and to me, help find your voice. Yeah. Yeah. And to reconnect to finding your voice. Yeah. And for me, what it has become is giving that to folks because my whole intention, when we start a forest bathing session, I ask folks, what's your intention? What do you want to get out of it? And I tell them what my intention is. My intention Mm -hmm. is to make sure that you walk away from this session with some techniques, some exercises that you can do all by yourself to lower your level of stress. And you've been forest bathing with me. So, yeah. And I live in the woods. And yeah. and 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 it's a great way of combining an artful way of understanding um, our relaxation in Mother Earth. And I think yes. that's a beautiful segue to say thank you, to let go of the stress, say thank you to our glorious Joan Kane for taking the time to be my guest and to share your wisdom and inspiration and wonderful career with all of us. You can find Joan at Joan Kane, J-O-A-N Kane, K with a with a K, K-A-N-E dot U-S is one website. Her production company is Ego Actus, E-G-O-A-C-T-U-S dot com. You can find both of them on all social media. Uh, she also has a contact sheet on her website if you want to be a part of any of their productions and you want to send in a picture and a res to find me go to sandrabargeman.com you can get the live recording of the edge of every day on amazon cd baby spotify and youtube do you have anything i feel like you have one more thing you want to say joan i want to leave people with this quote by tolstoy one of the first conditions of happiness is that the link between man and nature shall not be broken oh excellent yeah. Remember, we're always on the edge of the miraculous. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Until the next time, take good care. This is our last dance. This is our last dance. This is ourselves under pressure. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? 
Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL, every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern, on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL, every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. podcast gateway to the smokies it airs on talkradio.nyc every tuesday night from 6 p.m to 7 every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the great smoky mountains national park and surrounding areas this show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture history and adventure that awaits you in the smokies tune in every tuesday from 6 p.m to 7 on talkradio.nyc Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 